This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So the title of tonight's talk is Equanimity Equally Close to All Things. And equanimity is a factor that is integral to all aspects of meditation. It's not limited to just the Brahma-Vihara practice, which is this sequence of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. But equanimity is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and it's one of the qualities that is associated with um, deep concentration, and it is one of the factors that arise with all wholesome states. Equanimity is, is the term that we use to describe, to translate the Pali term upeka, which is a quality that is an ethical quality. It's a quality that we cultivate. It's not just the mere experiencing of a neutral feeling. The near enemy of upeka is what it might be mistaken for, which is indifference, avoidance, and withdrawal. These, quali- these aspects of withdrawal and not caring should really not be confused with the very profound quality of equanimity. Equanimity is animated with interest and presence, interest in whatever is occurring, simply because that is the fact of what is occurring. Some years ago, I did a retreat. It was a four-month retreat that was focused on the Brahma-viharas. And the, a good chunk of the time, a little over half of it, was spent with um, loving-kindness. And then I did a portion on compassion, and then a portion on joy, and then a portion on equanimity. And during the equanimity section, I remember going to an interview just saying, equanimity is cool. And it was an interesting quality to just be saturated when you do one, when you do any of these fact these these development of the factors in retreat. That's what you do from the time you wake up in the morning, through evening, through falling asleep, while showering, while walking, while eating is just the development of that particular factor. So it grows incredibly vivid and it just fills consciousness. And equanimity is not a dramatic feeling, but it is a deliciously cooled out, non-agitated response to all things. And it is the ability to stay connected and steady with the vicissitudes of life, so that we literally stay equally close to all things, close to the things that we like and equally close to the things that we don't like. The tendency to push away the things that we dislike vanishes, and we find ourselves equally open to everything that arises moment by moment without preference. During this exploration of equanimity, um, one of my teachers, Christopher Titmus, said that there were two areas that he thought were of primary importance to develop equanimity in. And the first was 
the, the scale of pleasure and pain. And the second was equanimity regarding future results, the future results of our actions. And this has kind of become a guiding principle in the development of equanimity for me. So first I want to talk a little bit about working with both pleasure and pain. Because throughout the day, you're going to experience both. Some moments are going to be pleasant, other ones are going to be painful. And often we flip and change between those two. And an awful lot of moments are kind of not really one or the other, but they're on that scale. Sort of pleasant, sort of unpleasant, both pleasant and unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. In any day of our lives, there are going to be both ex extreme, both aspects of the experience and a lot of experiences in between. How are we going to relate to these changes and these vicissitudes? Does the mind remain peaceful, steady, balanced, equanimous, open, receptive, accepting? This receptivity, this openness, reveals a depth of understanding that things are the way that they are. In life, we might find gain, but we'll also find loss. We might experience praise, but we'll also get blame. We might experience fame, but we'll also experience disrepute. They'll be pleasant, and they'll be unpleasant. There are so many examples of civilizations that rose and then fell of leaders who had, were in the limelight and then fell into obscurity, to beginnings and endings of romances, of relationships, of projects. There are so many times when we might do one thing and somebody praises us for it and somebody blames us for it, where we, we might um, have one activity and somebody thinks it's fabulously important and somebody else thinks it is absolutely the worst thing we could have possibly done. Equanimity practice is something that we can engage in in so many ways. In the, the Buddhist discourses, he said, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, so any object that we see, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, there has arisen in me what is agreeable, there has arisen in me what is disagreeable, there has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable. But that is conditioned gross, dependently arisen. This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is equanimity. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose cease in him and equanimity is established. It's a very simple teaching where the Buddha acknowledges that feelings will arise any time there is contact. There might be experiences that are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
These feelings come with our experience, and there is not much that we can do about the nature of feeling. But there's a lot that we can do about how we are relating to feelings. So in this discourse, the Buddha goes on to describe equanimity regarding forms with the eye, things that we see, using a series of similes. And he says, the first one describes a kind of quality of ease that occurs when we can relate with equanimity. And he describes it as being like a man with good eyesight, having his op- opened his eyes might shut them, or having shut his eyes might open them. So too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. He basically says our response is so is as easy and as seamless as blinking our eyes. Then regarding sounds cognizable by the ear, he uses the illustration that always reminds me of the phrase of the of the um, saying that we have of letting it go like water off a duck's back. But he says just as raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off and do not remain there, so too concerning anything that anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. In all of these qualities, you'll, similes, you'll sense a a description of something that's filled with ease, where there's a non-stickiness, a non-reactivity. Regarding flavors cognizable by the tongue, he says, just as a strong man might easily spit out a ball of spittle collected on the tip of his tongue, so too, and concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable, dot, 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 and equanimity is established. And then regarding things that we think, mind objects, cognizable by the mind, he says it is as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate that had been heated for a whole day. The falling of the drops might be slow, but they would quickly vaporize and vanish. So too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and then it goes through that, and equanimity is established. They're beautiful similes, and the illustrations describe that it's important to see that feelings do arise. The practice doesn't stop feelings from arising. Equanimity doesn't stop us from feeling life. There is going to be pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings. They're a natural part of all experience. But when feeling arises, there are two things that we do. The first is that we see what has arisen. We know what it is. And we understand its qualities. We understand that it is impermanent, that it is conditioned 
that it changes. When there is mindfulness and investigation, the consequence is that equanimity is established quickly and easily, just like spitting or vaporizing water or water dewdrops falling off, raindrops falling off of a lotus leaf. There is just no struggle in experience anymore. And equanimity is developed simply by seeing what is with wisdom. Equanimity is not an incredibly dramatic experience, and yet it is one of the highest forms of happiness. The mistake that most people make is that they forget to see the characteristics of the experience. They forget to investigate, to see the context of experience and how it arises, what it depends upon, how it changes, how it is impermanent, ungraspable, and empty. And when we don't see this conditionality and the characteristics of things, then it's very easy to become attached to the pleasant experiences or try to avoid the unpleasant experiences. If you find yourself repeating the same patterns and tendencies, rather than just think, well, that's just the kind of person I am, perhaps it would be useful to investigate what is sustaining those patterns? What are their qualities? Cultivate a little reflective investigation in the practice. And if you don't know how to investigate your experience, just try to see how it changes. Just look for this one factor of impermanence, because this is the primary thing that we investigate, and it will naturally lead to all the other insights. When we look at impermanence, we notice the beginning of an experience. We notice how it changes in the middle, and we notice the ending. It could be a feeling. It could be a sensation. It could be a thought. It could be a sound. It could be the weather. Sunny in the afternoon, but it was foggy in the morning, and it's cool in the evening. Every day, there are many opportunities to notice impermanence. Equanimity arises through seeing things as they change and still being open to them in all the phases of experience, those aspects that are pleasant, those aspects that are unpleasant. So we open to the changing nature of things with a mind that doesn't struggle with it, a mind without contention, present for any feeling that might arise. So equanimity is the expression of wisdom that puts an end to conflict when there is equanimity, we open to both sides of things, the pleasant, the unpleasant. And we find we don't need to take sides. We can respond to a situation with simple and grounded wisdom. Now, I said there were two areas, pleasant and unpleasant, and future results that... Um, 
we can work with equanimity in. And future results, of course, is an obvious one. We can't control the future. So what are we going to do? We might as well develop equanimity with it, right? Otherwise, we're sure to suffer. Can we stay in connection with the present moment as this present moment becomes this present moment and becomes this present moment and becomes this present moment? That's our future. There actually isn't something out there in advance of us that we're walking into. We're just moving from one changing moment into the next changing moment, into the next changing moment. That's our future. Can we know what is under our control and what isn't? And what we'll discover is that a lot of things aren't. We might like to think we're in control of our lives, but really, can you control this body? Can you make it not get sick? Can you control anything? <laughs> Body, mind, life. There's that wonderful prayer that says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There are so many times in my own life that I look back and I think, how did I get here? This was not in my plan. This was really obvious when I was traveling because sometimes I would even have an itinerary which had me being someplace where I wasn't. And I thought, oh, this really was not in my plan. How do we get where we are? We follow interest. We follow opportunity. Sometimes health concerns change our plans. Sometimes it's impulse. Sometimes it's priorities. Chance happenings, chance meetings, the influence of friends. Traveling forces us to develop flexibility and equanimity. Because sometimes we think we can control our days because often we try so hard to make our day fit our plan for it. Whatever we had in our, in our calendar, we think it should actually go that way. We should have all those meetings at those times. If we're going to do those errands, we should do all those errands. If we're going to go to the bank to cash a check, they should have money to cash the check. If we're going to go to the bank, to the post office to buy stamps, they should have stamps to sell to us. If we're going to go to the store to buy a zucchini, they should have zucchini. Most of the time in our culture, that actually does work out. And we can develop the delusion that we can control things. Well, just travel. <laughs> just go someplace else. And you'll find that you'll go to a post office and they won't have stamps. You'll go to a bank and they won't have money. You'll go to the store and they won't have what you were looking for. It's a really good opportunity to realize that things really are not in our control. On my first trip to India, it was a little difficult to realize that these kinds of things were a daily part of the experience. We diligently go to the bank, ready to cash our traveler's check, and just hope that they had money. More than half the time they didn't then. Um, and so what do you do? You just go back and you 
go back the next day, and then you go back the next day, and eventually money appears, and you can tr cash your traveler's check, and you can buy a train ticket and go someplace else. <laughs> so on this first trip, some friends taught me a mantra, because at first I was very frustrated. And this mantra was, ah, this is India. <laughs> and whenever things didn't work out the way that I had expected, we would all say, ah, this is India. And it was a great reminder because it reminded me to let go of my expectations, not to have the trip that I planned. I had already had that in my head. You know, but to actually be where I was and to open to that experience, to rest a little bit more, to enjoy the experience, and to just be with the frustration and the beauty of it all. It also taught me that things that I expect to be natural really are not. There could very well be a time when we go to our banks and there is no money there. That is a perfectly likely possibility. It just hasn't happened in recent years, but it could easily happen. So a lot of the things that we take for granted end up um, being something that when they change, we might not have the equanimity to realize, oh, this too was impermanent. Can we rest in the presence of things that we cannot control or cannot comprehend? There was a time I was living in a community. It was a, a, a Buddhist community of a mixture of different traditions. And we were all trying to practice together. But we were practicing various things. And one of the things that I found to be quite curious was our weekly community meetings. And this weekly community meeting would be a time when we... Um, people would bring up things that they thought were not quite right in the community. Um, somebody opened the window. Somebody closed the window. Somebody used margarine instead of butter. Somebody used butter instead of margarine. Somebody hung their laundry on the banister. Somebody did their cleaning chores on Tuesday instead of the scheduled time on Wednesday. Somebody entered the meditation hall late. Somebody entered the left the meditation hall early. Somebody didn't put the toilet seat down. Uh, da, 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 da. There was all kinds of things, and these would be brought up for discussion, and we would make a rule. <laughs> these meetings were a really sad joke, and it was often a contemplation to just think, why do we have to control all of these things? Why make a policy? Why not just take the opportunity to let go and to be with the experience just a little bit. The Buddha taught what kinds of actions lead to happiness and what kinds of actions lead to suffering. But he also taught that the intricacies of action, of karma, were unfathomable. We cannot predict the exact results of any action that we take. We know that lying and stealing and killing will lead to suffering. And we know that 
actions like generosity and kindness and the development of the mind in meditation lead to wholesome states and take us further along the path towards the end of suffering. But the exact intricacies of how it plays out, we cannot comprehend. Sometimes people come to meditation practice and they think, okay, I just sat for 40 minutes. How did it go? What was the result of it? And expect some kind of, kind of instant way of analyzing or assessing whether the practice is working. I always find this to be quite curious because how do we assess if it's working? Almost everybody assesses something is working because they get a good feeling that they like. But you remember what I talked about at the beginning of, this, of the discourse where feeling is really not the basis to decide our actions. There might be agreeable feelings. There might be disagreeable feelings. There might be feelings that are both agreeable and disagreeable. A sitting may be calm. Our meditation might be agitated. We might experience pleasant sensations. We might sit and feel unpleasant sensations. The mind might be clear. It might be dull. We might be energized. We might be tired. It might be quiet. It might be noisy. These should not be the criteria upon which we judge or assess or evaluate our practice. We really can't decide, oh, that was a good meditation because I got that particular feeling that I like. Can we instead simply be present and open to the dullness as well as the clarity, the noise as well as the quiet, the irritation as well as the things we enjoy and appreciate. Whatever is happening is what is happening. And in meditation, that is what we are present for. It's actually our life, whether it's what we want or not. If we're worrying about the future results, how can we be present with what is real right now. There's a story, and I'm not sure what tradition this is in. Somebody told me it was a Jewish traditional story. Somebody told me it was a Christian traditional story. Somebody told me it was a Tibetan traditional story. And somebody told me it was a Hindu traditional story. I think it's one of those human stories. And the story is of a poor farmer who had a son. And then one day, a horse just wandered right into his farm. And he acquired this horse, which was a great asset for the poor family. And the um, neighbors said, oh, what luck. And um, the farmer just said, I don't know. And then they, they worked with the horse. The horse made it much easier to, to, to travel, to work the fields. And, but one day the horse just disappeared, wandered off, disappeared back into the forest. And the neighbors said, oh, such bad luck. And the farmer said, I don't know. And then sometime later, that horse wandered back to the farm, but this time coming with a mare. Now there were two horses. And the neighbor said, such good luck. And the farmer said, I don't know. 
then there was the son was training the mare to um, to you know breaking the mare and training it to, to wear the, um, the 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 saddle and everything, and he was thrown from the horse and broke his leg, and the neighbors said such bad luck, and the farmer said I do not know, and um, then. About a week later, the um, army came through town and forced all the young men in the village to um, enter into the army, and except for this, this son, because his leg was broken. Um, and the, far the neighbor said, such good luck. <laughs> and the, um, the, the farmer said, I do not know. And you know, it goes on and on like that. How do we know what should be happening? How do we assess something as being good or bad, what we want, what we don't want, pleasant or unpleasant, lucky or unlucky? There's so much we really don't know. How can we develop equanimity within the vicissitudes and the fluctuations of our uncontrolled experience? We can develop equanimity through mindfulness practice through just this capacity to be aware of what is without judging. We can develop equanimity through concentration practice because the deep calmness and the steadiness, that non-reactive stability supports equanimity. That willingness to just keep beginning again, coming back again and again to our meditation object develops that deep, quiet equanimity. The mind also naturally becomes less reactive, less sticky as it gets um, concentrated. There are also reflective practices that develop equanimity, specifically this practice in the Brahma-viharas, where we reflect upon the phrase, all beings are the heirs to their action or kama. Their their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not my wishes for them. But life is really where we develop equanimity. When we get sick, as we age, as things happen, how do we open to our day-to-day -day experience with interest and clarity? Equanimity is the stable presence of the open heart in the midst of life's experience, equally close to all things. We need to develop equanimity around daily experiences, such as inconvenient things that might happen, times when you might want something to be happening that it isn't, like Maybe somebody is late for an appointment and you have to wait. Or maybe you're expecting an answer on the email and you keep checking and keep checking and keep checking, but you're not getting that answer quite yet and it's a little inconvenient. Can you be patient? Can you be equanimous through that? What if you have to drive around the block to find a parking place or compromise in a negotiation? Or you just can't order the food that you want in a restaurant because they're out of that that day. Is there equanimity? Waiting is a wonderful time to develop equanimity and I think it's something that we don't do enough of. 
It's interesting to be in the grocery store and to see how incredibly impatient people are these days. I don't know if you've noticed it, but people don't like to wait even two and a half seconds. I um, have a friend who um, went on a trip and the place where she went um, had only dial-up. Well, she couldn't do email. It was just too slow. I mean, would we have said that 10 years ago? (laughs) Of course, being stuck in traffic is a great time to develop equanimity. Illnesses, accidents. These are all times when we need to cultivate that deep willingness to just be with the fact of things, to stay steady no matter what. We also, though, need equanimity when we are flattered, when we are complimented, when we are successful, when we are praised. If we don't have that equanimity when we are praised, we will be gullible and we will be easily uh, manipulated. Equanimity is one of the four Brahma-viharas. And in the context of the Brahma-viharas, it has a specific aspect. When we're developing loving-kindness, there is a particular kind of tendency with loving-kindness that if it isn't balanced with equanimity, it can easily lead towards affection or towards desire or towards a kind of, of love that is attached to something in particular, someone in particular, or some result in particular. But the strength of loving kindness comes when it is suffused with equanimity so that we develop equanimity, we develop loving kindness, but we do not need to control the results of it. We do not need somebody else to want or like or acknowledge our love for them. We are equanimous and still develop loving-kindness. When we develop the two other Brahma-viharas, compassion, which is this um, quality of quivering of the heart when the heart meets pain, and joy, appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, which is the delight and rejoicing in somebody else's success and good fortune. It's very easy for compassion to become heavy, or for joy to become giddy and too buoyant and to go into those extremes. And it's, it's when they're infused with equanimity that these qualities are balanced and stable and then can to continue to be developed and developed and developed stronger and stronger and stronger without falling off into these extremes of either... Um, Um, a a downward cycle of depression if we're always in relationship to suffering, or this kind of giddy exuberance if we're always focusing on the, um, the, the, the success of others. Equanimity keeps those practices balanced and stable. The primary way that we develop the equanimity practice as the fourth Brahma Vihara is this repetition and reflection on All beings are the heirs to their own karma or action. 
Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not my wishes for them. Now, when you think about the other Brahma Viharas, you'll understand that phrase a little bit more, how powerful it is. Because we've just been spending all this time thinking, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. But all beings are the heirs to their own actions. We've just been thinking, may you be free from suffering. Well, maybe they're still suffering. Their, their actions are the, are, the, are, the, are the feature there. Um, and then the success, may your good fortunes continue and increase. Well, who knows? So equanimity is the, develops as a specific, but it balances all of the Brahma Viharas, but, and it's infused with the mindfulness practice, but we take it, when we take it as a practice unto itself, we contemplate this phrase in relationship to first neutral people, then ourselves, then benefactors, then to dear friends, and difficult people, people who are suffering, people who are successful, and all beings. So we go through all the different categories, contemplating that all beings are the heirs to their own actions. Their happiness and their unhappiness depends upon their actions, not my wishes for them. This contemplation of karma leads to a deep wisdom that understands that things arise not out of our desire, but they arise due to causes and conditions. Equanimity is a very smooth way of relating to experience. It has the openness of the other Brahma Viharas, but it's cool and non-agitated. And yet it's connected, just like all the other Brahma Viharas. So it has this incredibly happy quality to it, which is completely cool. Sublime, peaceful kind of happiness. It's preferable. I don't know anybody who's gone through all the Brahma Vihara practices and not preferred equanimity. But then, of course, we're beyond preferences by the time we get there, right? So we don't ever say that. <laughs> but it's a really nice quality. It's the same with the, with, the, with the concentration practices. People go through the concentration practices, and at first they think the first jhana, the first absorption is great because it has all this rapture and all this delight. And the second jhana also has all this rapture and delight. And people think, oh, this is great. But it doesn't take long to get a little bit agitated by it. And then one is just suffused with this happiness in the third jhana. And people think that's great. But then the mind gets, gets tired of that too. And then the fourth jhana, the higher jhanas, all are infused with equanimity. And again, I know nobody who goes through these practices, and if they could choose, doesn't just choose the fourth. The one that has the equanimity. That peacefulness is so much what the mind wants. It's actually described as that peacefulness is described as the highest happiness in the Buddhist texts. Now, when I was doing this um, four-month Brahma Vihara retreat, you can imagine by the end, I mean, after all that time in silence, and then I'm culminating with this, this equanimity practice, the mind is really concentrated, and it's really, like, cool. And um, I, 
Weeks were going by and I was not experiencing even the slightest desire or aversion. And so this little thought arose, I must be beyond desire and aversion. <laughs> And I, made, I didn't exactly say that. I, I, I knew well enough to not say it, but I thought it. And it kind of infused a little bit of the way that I was reporting my experience. And my teacher, Christopher Titmans, um, who um, has a good sense of humor and has known me for many decades, um, very simply reminded me. He said, Shyla, equanimity is a conditioned state. The feeling of it is so exquisite that it's easy to confuse it with the liberated mind that is free of desire and aversion, rather than the conditioned state in which desire and aversion don't arise. Very different. I and mine still operate in even very deep states of equanimity as the subtle one who is experiencing the equanimity, the meditator. That very sense of being the one who was beyond desire and aversion is the bond of reactivity, and that is the limitation of equanimity. So even equanimity, even this extraordinary peace, has to be seen for what it is. We shouldn't underestimate the strength and the power of this steadiness, but we must know that equanimity is a conditioned state. It only feels like liberation. There is still work that needs to be done. Let's have a few moments of silence to end, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.